Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school class offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar, and will be the host of these lectures. Session 5, James, the Brother of Jesus. Of the great figures in our series, James is one of the least familiar to most Christians today. In sermons and Sunday school lessons, James tends to play second fiddle to the likes of Peter and Paul and John and Mary. And in the Reformation period, Martin Luther had little regard for the book that bears James's name. In his preface to the New Testament, Luther refers to the book of James as a, quote, epistle of straw, for it seemed to him to be at odds with the Pauline doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Yet, James was a crucial figure in the early church. He was among those who saw the resurrected Christ, and he was eventually martyred for his faith. In Galatians 2.9, Paul refers to James, along with Peter and John, as pillars of the Jerusalem church. And we know from Acts 15 that James played a pivotal leadership role in the important apostolic council regarding the relationship between the law and Gentile converts. Early Christian thinkers, such as Hegesippus, refer to James as James the Just because of his piety and commitment to the law. In fact, Hegesippus reports that James would constantly pray in the temple, so much so that his knees became hardened like that of a camel. He also indicated that James, not unlike John the Baptist, had taken a Nazarite vow, which meant not drinking any wine and refraining from cutting his hair. So who is James? Was he truly an opponent of Paul, as Luther supposes, or was he a faithful church leader? Though he receives less airtime today, what role did he play in the development of early church theology and practice? And how might the church be different today if we re-familiarized ourselves with his teachings? These are some of the questions that we want to consider in this session of our Great Figures of the New Testament course. I suspect that one of the reasons James is less familiar for most Christians today is simply because it is confusing to figure out which James is which in the pages of our New Testament. The name James was evidently quite popular in first century Israel. It is actually the Latinized spelling of the Greek name Iakobos, which is derived from the common Hebrew name Yaakov or Jacob. This name James occurs 42 times in the New Testament, and it appears to refer to at least three different people. First, there is James, son of Alphaeus. He is easily the least prominent of the Jameses in the New Testament, and accordingly, he is known as James the Lesser in church tradition. We know that James, son of Alphaeus, was one of the twelve disciples, but beyond that, nothing much is said of him. There was a small possibility that he is the brother of Matthew, since Matthew, who is also called Levi, is also described as the son of Alphaeus, but this is far from certain. Second, there is James, the son of Zebedee. He and his brother John are among the twelve disciples as well, and they are well known for having left their father and their lucrative fishing business to follow Jesus. This James is often referred to as James the Greater because he was the older son of John. Us younger sons can debate about whether older means greater, but that's another matter. James the son of Zebedee is a witness to the transfiguration of Jesus, and he later accompanies Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gives this James and his brother John the name Boanerges, which in Aramaic probably means something like sons of thunder, perhaps in reference to their volatile temple tempers or zeal. 
James the Greater, or James the son of Zebedee, was the first of the twelve disciples to suffer martyrdom, having been killed by Herod Agrippa I somewhere around 44 CE. Much later tradition has it that this James, prior to his death, traveled to Spain to preach the gospel, and because of this, James, or Saint Iago, as he has come to be known, becomes the patron saint of Spain and later its colonies, Chile and Nicaragua. This James is a fascinating figure, and he, along with his brother, could well have been a session in our series. But our attention will focus on yet another James. The third major figure named James in the New Testament is called James the brother of Jesus. This is the James that Paul refers to as a pillar of the Jerusalem church, and it is this James that plays a key role in the previously mentioned apostolic council in Jerusalem. It is most likely the case that James, the brother of Jesus, is the same James mentioned as the author of the book of James, or the epistle of James. Some scholars dispute this connection, suggesting that the book of James was either written by another James, or that it is pseudonymous, having been written by another author, author, perhaps an associate of James, the brother of Jesus. All of this is possible since the epistle simply refers to James the Apostle, not James the brother of Jesus. Nevertheless, Eusebius assumes the connection between the book and James the brother of Jesus, as does Origen and today a majority of New Testament scholars, including Luke Timothy Johnson. And this, in fact, is my own view, that the author of James is, in fact, James the brother of Jesus. Now, the distinguishing feature of this James is, of course, his unique relationship with Jesus. But this point has been the cause of much controversy throughout church history. There are three main views that are evident. The most natural and perhaps widely accepted view is that James is the biological brother of Jesus, and thus he's a son of Mary and Joseph from some time after Jesus was born. There's no real reason to question this connection. In fact, there are several New Testament passages that mention Jesus having brothers and sisters, and among them is a brother named James. Further, in Galatians 1.9, Paul refers to James as the ton Adelphon ton Curion, the brother of the Lord. The most straightforward reading of the Gospels then, and of the letters, reveal that James, in fact, is the true biological brother of Jesus. However, another view begins to surface in the 2nd century CE and is found in the Protevangelium of James, a type of prequel to the Gospels and supposedly written by James the brother of Jesus himself. In this non-canonical text, the brothers and sisters of Jesus actually turn out to be step-siblings. In this story, when Joseph meets Mary, uh, he is actually quite old. He's 80, and he's already been married and has had many kids, and his wife has died. And among these kids he had from his previous marriage is a man named James. This then would make James not the biological brother of Jesus, but rather, <coughs> excuse me, a stepson or a step sibling of Jesus. This view is taken up by Origen and Eusebius and Gregory of Nyssa and many others in the history of the church. Now, what is the appeal of this story? Why would you have a text that that had to describe James away as a step-sibling rather than a blood brother? Where did this view come from? It's most likely the case that this view is connected to the emerging belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary in the second century CE. In this view, it was important to emphasize not only that uh, 
Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, but that she continued to abstain from sexual relations throughout the rest of her life. She thus had only one child and remained a virgin in perpetuity. This would, of course, then mean that any reference to Jesus having brothers or sisters would have to be reimagined and reinterpreted in another way. And in this case, it's that these brothers were actually stepbrothers. Yet a third view comes from St. Jerome in the 4th century and is later picked up by Augustine. Jerome and Augustine also agree that Mary was a perpetual virgin, and thus they too have to explain away any New Testament references to Jesus' siblings. But they do so in a way that was different than the Protevangelium of James. We know that James's mother is said to be Mary, and most have assumed that this Mary is in fact Mary the mother of Jesus. But Jerome and Augustine insist that this Mary, the Mary the mother of James, is not Mary the mother of Jesus, but rather is a different Mary. They believe that it is Mary the wife of Clopas, who in John 19.25 is called the sister of Mary. This then would make James the cousin of Jesus, not the brother of Jesus. At a linguistic level, this is possible in part because the Aramaic word for brother can also mean cousin, and perhaps this flexibility of meaning was lost on us and lost in particular in Greek and English translations of the New Testament. Now, those in this camp also sometimes go a step further, and they identify Clopas, the supposed father of James, with Alphaeus. This means that James, the brother of Jesus, is not only really James, the cousin of Jesus, but he is also the same James referred to elsewhere as James, the son of Alphaeus. So, in this view, there are only two major figures in the New Testament referred to as James. There's James, the son of Zebedee, and then there's James, the cousin of Jesus, who is, uh, who is also James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve disciples. If you're feeling a bit confused about all of these Jameses, it would be quite understandable. One of the challenges, in fact, of this course is to sort out the various figures in the New Testament who share common first century names. For instance, is Mary Magdalene the same Mary as, uh, as is mentioned as the sister of Martha, the Mary of Bethany that we encounter elsewhere? Or is the disciple John the same John who wrote the gospel that bears his name? Or the same John said to have written the book of Revelation or the three short epistles uh, referred to as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? We might well add James to this mix of confusing names in the New Testament. My own view is that James, the brother of Jesus, is distinct from both James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. I believe that James, the brother of Jesus, was the actual biological older brother, or excuse me, younger brother of Jesus, and that this James is the same James that was a leader of the Jerusalem church and who played a significant role in the apostolic council in Jerusalem and who later wrote the epistle that bears James's name. Let's turn then to the next major issue, James' leadership role in the early church. It is widely regarded that this James played a role as a key leader in the Jerusalem church in the decades following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul, in fact, refers to James, along with John and Peter, as a pillar in the Jerusalem church. Tradition has it that he ruled the Jerusalem church for 30 years, basically from the time of Jesus' death to the time of his own martyrdom in 62 CE. 
James's leadership role might at first seem a bit surprising to us. After all, it is not exactly clear if James was a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly life. In Mark 3.21, James and the rest of Jesus' family go out to restrain Jesus because people were saying that he, quote, had gone out of his mind. The Greek here is the word ecstasis, from which we get words like ecstasy. This was quite a serious charge, since in in the ancient world, insanity was attributed to demonic possession. So while these were not exactly James's words, he and his family seemed to do very little to resist those who were speaking this way about Jesus, and it's not entirely clear that James or any other of his brothers and sisters were devout disciples of Christ. Alternatively, it's It's plausible, though, that James was a follower of Jesus and that his role was downplayed by the gospel writers, particularly out of an interest of showing that all followers of Jesus were his brothers and sisters, not just his biological siblings. In fact, the book of James has 32 references to the sayings of Jesus, especially as they are reported in the Gospel of Luke, and so we might then naturally assume that James was in fact present for much of Jesus' earthly ministry. In either case, we might wonder, how did James become a key leader in the Jerusalem church? The New Testament does not fully explain how this happened, but church tradition has suggested several possibilities. One possibility is found in 1 Corinthians 15. That text tells us that the resurrected Jesus appears to James, and perhaps it was at this point in the encounter in his encounter with the resurrected Christ that he was commissioned to be a leader uh, in the missionary efforts and the establishment of the church in Jerusalem. This if this were the case, we would see then a clear parallel between the commissioning of James and the commissioning of Paul, both of which happened due to the appearance of the resurrected Christ. Another possibility is that James shared leadership in Jerusalem with John and Peter. In fact, Paul already begins to suggest that this is the case when he refers to these three figures as pillars in the Jerusalem church. John and Peter, in particular, were often out on missionary journeys, and they were often imprisoned for their belief. So perhaps it is that James was the default leader in their absence. This would make him what we today might refer to as an interim head of staff of the Jerusalem church. Another possibility comes to us from the Gospel of Thomas, which presents a number of sayings about Jesus and his disciples that are not recorded in our canonical Gospels. In saying 12, a story is related that that the disciples asked Jesus after his resurrection, but before his ascension back to heaven, this following question. They say, quote, we are aware that you will depart from us. Who will be our leader? And Jesus says to them, no matter where you come from, it is to James the just that you shall go, for, the, for whose sake heaven and earth have come to exist. So in this story then, James the just, also known as James the brother of Jesus, is directly commissioned by the resurrected Christ to be the leader of the church. Clement of Alexandria tells a different story. After the resurrection, James uh, was chosen as the bishop of Jerusalem by Peter and John and James the son of Zebedee. And Clement of Alexandria reports it this way. This James, whom the people of old called the just because of his outstanding virtue, was the first 
as the record tells us, to be elected as bishop of the Jerusalem church. The Greek word for bishop here is actually episkopos, epi meaning over and skopos meaning to see as in microscope. So, in this sense, a bishop is an overseer, and that's the background of our word today, episcopal. Eusebius gives us a similar story, but according to him, James was elected as bishop by all of the apostles, not just Peter, John, and James, the son of Zebedee. Perhaps we can speculate that James ran a successful election campaign to earn such a position. We don't know. This brings us then to James's role in the Apostolic Council, also known as the Council of Jerusalem. This council is described in Acts 15 and likely occurred somewhere around 50 CE. It came to be seen by the later church as a prototype of ecumenical church councils, and we might th- think of it as something of a general assembly here in our Presbyterian tradition. Arguably, it was the most important council in the early church. The major question facing the council was this. Did Gentile believers in Christ have to become Jewish in order to be Christian? Did they have to be circumcised and did they have to follow the laws of Moses to be in good standing in the church? There, were t- there was a major disagreement about this very point and two major theological camps emerged. Acts 15 says that there were some believers who were from the sect of the Pharisees who insisted that Gentile converts had to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses into truly be a disciple of Christ. What they were saying is that these Gentile converts essentially had to become Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus. Now, this is not by any means unreasonable, although it might sound a bit strange to us today. We must keep in mind uh, that things like circumcision and the Mosaic law were important markers of identity of all believers, and almost all of the earliest followers of Jesus were, in fact, Jewish. So, by default then, most followers of Jesus were, in fact, circumcised and were following the laws of Moses. And so, this particular side theological position emphasized that new converts, particularly uh, converts with a Gentile background, would have to do likewise, would also have to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. Now, others strongly objected to this point and insisted that the Gentiles are free from the burden of Mosaic law. They were even free from the need to be circumcised. Peter, for instance, argues passionately before this council in Jerusalem, as is uh, depicted in Acts 15, 9 through 11. Peter says this, quote, And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he, that is God, has made no distinction between them, them being the Gentiles, and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will be saved." You can tell here from Peter's words how controversial the point was. He refers to the other side of the aisle, that is the position of those believers who came from the sect of the Pharisees, as putting God to the test. And earlier in Acts 15.2, the text tells us that Paul and Barnabas, who were essentially on the side of Peter in this debate, 
had, quote, no small dissension and debate with those on the other side of the aisle. Let me be clear about what the situation is. The unity of the church was at stake. The church was about to split into the first church of Christian Gentiles and the second church of Christian Jews. This was a major turning point in the early church, and much was, res- was riding on how this, debu- this dispute would be resolved by this council in Jerusalem. And this is precisely where James, the brother of Jesus, comes in. After everyone else had spoken, Acts 15 tells us that James offers his own view on the matter, picking up then in verse 19 in Acts chapter 15. Therefore I, the I here being James, have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from the things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. The brilliance here in James' response is that he offers something of a mediating position between the two sides of the debate. Against those who insisted that Gentile converts had to be circumcised and follow Mosaic law, James simply says, let's not trouble the Gentiles with these additional burdens or these additional laws. Believing in Jesus and being baptized in his name for James were necessary and sufficient for good standing in the church. But note carefully, though, that James does not do away with all Mosaic law. Some laws, in fact, still apply. This is over and against Paul, who in the book of 1 Corinthians seems unconcerned, for instance, about what Gentiles eat. The laws that James said do apply to Gentile converts are actually taken from Leviticus 17 and 18. And there, those laws such as um, abstaining from things polluted by idols, from fornication, and from whatever has been strangled and from blood, all of these things are found in Leviticus 17 and 18. And their stipulations for how resident aliens, that is non-Israelites, are to behave when living in the Israelite community. So what James is essentially doing is applying to Gentiles in his present community the same standards of behavior that were once applied to resident aliens living among the Israelites. Again, this is a nod back to the Pharisees and their belief in the ongoing relevance and importance of Mosaic law in the life of Christian believers. Also of note here, and what is particularly stunning, is James's logic. In explaining his mediating position, he quotes Amos 9, 11 through 12, and we find this in Acts 15, uh, going through verse 20. The text reads this way, This agrees, and here the word agree is symphoneo, from which we get the word symphony. With the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other people may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Then Peter reaches his decision, or excuse me, James reaches his decision and says, Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. 
What James is doing here is showing that the inclusion of the Gentiles, apart from strict following of the Mosaic law, had always been part of God's plan. So the mediating position then was not something new and different, but it was a way of taking the Old Testament, then known as the Hebrew Scriptures, quite seriously. In doing so then, James maintains a delicate balance between these two sides of the church that threaten to fracture the body of Christ. He provides a mediating position that respects a core aspect of both sides. To the Paul and Peter and Barnabas camp, he respects the fact that faith alone is sufficient for salvation, and that there should not be a high bar of entrance into the church. In fact, the bar should be set quite low. But against the Pharisees, he uh, roots his argument in the pages of Scripture, and he insists that some Mosaic law should, in fact, apply to the Gentiles, and that these laws are taken over from Leviticus 17 and 18, were once used to regulate the life of resident aliens living among the Israelites. Let's turn then to another major issue in the consideration of James, and that is James's relationship, or better yet, his rivalry with Paul. As already alluded to, Protestants have often thought about these figures as rivals. The core problem has to do with the relationship, or their view of the relationship between faith and works. As is well known, Paul stresses that one is justified, or enters into a right relationship with God, by faith alone not by works. The classic expression is in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This view of, being, of, of people being justified by grace through faith alone is a pillar of the Reformation, and in Luther's eyes, it, it marked a key difference between his thinking and that of traditional Catholic theology. The epistle of James presents what initially seems like a very different view of faith and works. Reading then from James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is why Luther didn't like the epistle of James. It's why he calls it an epistle of straw. In fact, Luther wanted it completely out of the New Testament canon. And while he doesn't ultimately go this far, in his translation of the New Testament, he moves the book of James to the very end of the New Testament and treats it as almost as a type of appendix. So what's going on here? Is there truly a rivalry between James and Paul? Do they truly have contrasting ideas of how one enters into a right relationship with God? Well, I think not necessarily, although this is often the common view that they are rivals and at odds on this point. I don't think there's sufficient evidence to draw this conclusion. In fact, I think part of the misunderstanding here is that Paul and James are operating with different definitions of work. 
For Paul, work means following the ritual laws of the Old Testament. And on this score, his statement makes sense. Following the ritual laws of the Old Testament is not necessary for salvation and thus not the grounds for any means of boasting. Remember, Paul, along with Peter and Barnabas, are on that one side of the aisle in the Jerusalem council, insisting that not even the work of circumcision is necessary for Christians to enter or for a believer to enter into the church. But for James, works means something closer to good works. For James, works doesn't have to do with ritual laws of the Old Testament, but rather it has to do with the fruit of faith, that natural consequence of action that flows from our belief. Yes, good works doesn't justify. I don't think James would have any disagreement with that. But he insists that works bear witness to true faith. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so too, according to James, is faith without work dead. Here's how James puts it, reading a little bit further from the second chapter. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. It's best to understand here Paul and James not as rivals and not as representing alternative theological perspectives, but rather as emphasizing two different but ultimately compatible understandings of the relationship of faith and works. Finally, I want to say a brief word or two about what I'll call the afterlife of James, that is, the way that James has continued to be of interest in the church today. In 2002, André Lemaire, an archaeologist from the Sorbonne in Paris, published a report that outlined the finding of a very interesting ossuary, or a stone container for bones of the dead. This particular ossuary that was found could be dated to the first century CE, and it bore the following inscription, Yaakov bar Yosef Hui de Yeshua. Translated, this means, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, as one can imagine, this stirred enormous interest. Was this really the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus, who had been martyred by a ruthless high priest around 62 CE? Speculation drove a ton of public interest in this artifact, and it was put on display in the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, and thousands flocked to see it. But by 2003, it had been shown that the inscription on this ancient artifact was, in fact, a modern-day forgery. The ossuary was from the first century CE, but the inscription came from forgers just several uh, in the early 2000s. In fact, these forgers was a part of a forgery ring that had been operating for more than 20 years. But what's instructive here to note is the the interest that was drawn by this ossuary, this idea that we could somehow find physical and artifactual evidence of a blood relative of Jesus captured the imagination of the church, both Catholic and Protestant. Beyond this, however, James has been somewhat of a marginal figure, especially in Protestant churches. And so what I want to conclude with is by asking, What would happen if we gave James more prominence in the church today? What if we thought of him as being on par with Paul and not a second fiddle to Paul? What difference would it make in our theology and our life together as a community of faith?
Well, I want to suggest three possibilities that would result if we took James more seriously in the church today. First, I suspect that the church might have a closer relationship with Judaism. James uh, was known for his commitment to his temple and to prayer. He represented and took seriously that Jewish side of the early church. In fact, the moral convictions that he lays out in the book of James address universal issues of social ethics that are consistent with what we know of the God of, from, of the Old Testament as much as they are from the God of the New Testament. Further, the ideas specified in the book of James are not particularly Christocentric, but rather they are more broadly theocentric. And so in a certain way, then, the book of James offers the basis for theological and ethical conversations between Jews and Christians alike. And in our world today, I believe that there is a great need to bring this relationship closer together between the church and the synagogue. Second, I suspect that if we took James more seriously, Catholic and Protestant churches might well have a closer relationship themselves. Protestants historically have accused Catholics of believing that one is saved by works. This is simply not true and not part of Catholic Catholic theology. And so on this score, I think there is much to learn from Catholics on the importance of works within a gospel of grace. And James, in their New Testament canon, is the book that best orchestrates this conversation between Catholics and Protestants. As we saw, James places emphasis on acting in a manner consistent with true belief. And so I think if we took James more seriously, we would recognize that there's much more common ground or that much more common ground exists with our Catholic brothers and sisters. We would find a synergy between orthodoxy, that is right belief, and orthopraxy, that is right behavior. Finally, if we took James more seriously, I suspect that Protestant churches might be less inclined to split and fracture over doctrinal differences. In the book of James, readers are exhorted to be slow to speak and quick to listen. We are warned against cursing one's neighbors. We are reminded that angry speech does not produce God's righteousness. And we are told to take a stand against attitudes of envy and arrogance. James modeled a particularly gracious way of being a leader in a theological context that involved controversy. His actions in the Jerusalem Council literally kept the church united at what was perhaps its most precarious situation in the first century CE. On this score, James's model is incredibly important to us today. Not only do we live in a time of adversarial uh, political debates, but we also live in a time where there's a disturbing mode of discourse found within Christianity and within specific churches and denominations. James offers us a great example of what it looks like to choose one another as opposed to choosing sides. Despite the serious issues that threatened to divide the church, James made a stand for the unity of the body of Christ.